Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. I'm Alex Ewell. Welcome to The Readback. Back in the days when I was still going into an office, my commute began with a 20-minute walk to the train, followed by a 40-minute train ride, and then another 15-minute walk to the office. One day, I realized I had been overlooking a major time saver, the bike in my garage. For the last six months before the pandemic, I was riding my bike every day to the train. It cut 40 minutes of daily walking into eight minutes of riding. It was a simple change and a major upgrade. How often can you flip a switch and gain 30 minutes of your life back? We've been conditioned to expect these types of improvements from technology, but my bike didn't have a single piece of tech on it. It turns out, more technology isn't always the answer. So far in this season of The Readback, we focused on the inevitability of self-driving cars. While we've been plenty skeptical of it all, and there have been plenty of issues around the execution of the idea, autonomous cars are generally seen as a societal advancement in the long run. They have the potential to be safer, more efficient, and more equitable. But what if we've been on the wrong track the entire time? There are people who dispute the entire premise of autonomous vehicles. Some just because they reject our dependence on cars, and some because they see it as one more technology tearing at the fabric of our society. I really think about the world through a simple equation, which is space minus cars equals quality of life. That's Danny Harris, the executive director of Transportation Alternatives, a New York advocacy group that has made it its mission to reclaim New York City's street from the automobile. After so many interviews with car folks, talking with Danny offered a big change in perspective. There's almost no problem that we face in our cities that doesn't go through or is caused by our failed transportation approach. So, you know, quite simply, our goal is to put people at the center of planning and resources and infrastructure and data in cities instead of inanimate objects, which are cars. Cars and car-based policies have failed us for more than 100 years. And to believe that cars, whether they are electric or autonomous, is going to solve our problems, uh, you know, is again investing in failure. So just to summarize, Danny is suggesting that autonomous cars aren't a breakthrough at all. They're simply continuing a century of the same mistakes. That flies in the face of technologists who say self-driving represents a major break from the past. car companies have been selling consumers, you know, this notion that you are who you drive. And guess what? Car companies have been selling that you are aggressive and you are free and you are entitled and you are allowed to engage in traffic violence with no implications. So why are we supposed to believe that a transition to electric or to autonomous is going to be any different? These cars are getting bigger, they're more powerful, they're more dangerous. So, you know, anybody who trusts that car companies are going to be making the best decision for the environment for people's pockets, for safety, you know, is living a lie. 
I do sometimes wonder how our cities became so defined by cars. And my interest was piqued further a few years ago when I spent time in the Netherlands. Walking around Amsterdam is almost like being in a different world. It's the bikes that rule the street. So much so that the city has brought in barges on its canals for additional bike parking. But here in the United States, things played out differently. When automobiles were first being sold in the U.S., they were sold as special purpose transport tools. That's Peter Norton, a professor of engineering and society at the University of Virginia and the author of the recent book, Autonorama, The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving. They were not sold as all-purpose mobility solutions. In other words, they were useful tools for connecting farmers to markets, useful for a Sunday outing in the country, useful for doctors to get to patients, useful for deliveries. But that's a limited market. That's especially true in cities where there were already lots of practical ways to get around. And so to sell cars, cars had to be repackaged as all-purpose mobility solutions. And that was actually necessary before you could justify removing a lot of the real estate in our cities to make room for parking or justify highway plans that put expressways right through the middle of cities. In Peter's telling, somewhere along the way, we became addicted to cars. And more and more of our policies were shaped by our need for a fix. You can justify these incredibly invasive, expensive projects if you can promise that the projects will deliver not just some practical needs, but that they will also deliver something like a kind of perfection. And what we saw in the marketing 80 years ago was a promise of future perfection. And the promise of future perfection will make people agree to go to much greater lengths to get there. We're not suggesting the invention of the car wasn't a huge deal. It's up there with the steam engine and the internet as the biggest innovations of modern times. But like those examples, cars wrought massive change. And at some point, you simply couldn't avoid them. It's almost like the story of Frankenstein. The industry birthed this thing and then lost control of everyone's response. You know, it's an old sales technique to promise people that something will not only be practically helpful, but it will really be a solution. It will solve all of your problems. In fact, the word solution itself has really proliferated in marketing in the last generation. And it's a kind of over-promising. You know, technology doesn't solve our problems. Technology gives us what we need to solve our problems for ourselves. But if you can promise somebody that your product is not just a tool, but a solution, well, you can really increase the value of that product in the eyes of the public. And if that line sounds familiar, It's quite clear that history is repeating itself when it comes to self-driving cars. The technology that's being sold to us in the form of autonomous vehicles is being sold not just as a practical tool. If that's all that was going on, I would applaud it. But it's being sold as the solution to everything, the thing that will finally make car dependency work, and I don't think that's credible. Freedom from traffic, freedom from parking, freedom from parking tickets, freedom from carpools, not to mention the promise of an uncrashable car. But there's another side of the coin. 
And for people in the crosshairs of self-driving, all those promises feel a lot different. No one knows that better than truck drivers. Aurora, one of the leading autonomous car companies, has made self-driving trucks their primary goal. There's just been such a rush towards this, and there's definitely a capital and economic incentive under the guise of some of the improvements in safety, which have yet to be proven. That's Kara Dennis, a communications official for the Teamsters Union, which represents about 600,000 truck drivers. The Teamsters and their members have navigated a lot of change over the years. For folks that don't know, I mean, we started out with teams of horses, and that's how deliveries were made, and moved with the times with the introduction of the vehicle, the truck, and all of the advancements that have been made that we've had in our societies, you know, in the past century. And we've been representing workers in the United States and across North America for over 100 years. So that gives the Teamsters some real credibility when it comes to thinking through the impact of future change. And among the truck drivers that the Teamsters represent, there's some real concerns about those impacts. There is some degree of skepticism over the viability at this moment in time and even really looking into the years ahead and how this technology can be implemented in a way that can truly replicate where the weather isn't completely predictable, where the roads are not completely predictable, where if you're working in an urban environment, let's say New York City, and there's construction and lane changes that happen that are at eight in the morning, but they weren't there at four in the morning. Kara's description of the skills involved brought me back to our conversation a few episodes ago about AI and its struggles to recreate the human driver. None of this is easy. Driving a car requires skill. Driving a heavy truck, even more so. I've heard from drivers who are out more on the open road, if you will, not in urban settings, and pointing out that you're constantly being alert and aware to different environmental factors, that you may notice something in the road and the question of whether you need to react in a certain way because it might be a porcupine that has a quill that could affect your tire or your vehicle or whether it's something harmless. And beyond the actual day-to-day operational tasks, the work which a lot of drivers are doing that are in public-facing roles in interacting with the community to all of the things that A computer is not able to do in the same way that they are able to do these jobs. The Teamsters' view is that driving is a more skilled profession than technology companies have realized, and that the ramifications of their innovations could have far-reaching effects. I asked Aurora CEO Chris Urmson about people losing their jobs as a result of self-driving technology. When you take a macroscopic view of this, It's clear that this technology is the right step forward, right? In in much the same way that the Industrial Revolution, if you you look at that objectively, dramatically improved the standard of living for everyone around the world. At the same time, there's a lot of people who were doing manual labor that industrialization caused them to lose their jobs. And I think we're going to see some level of displacement that happens again with automation coming into this space. Ultimately, Chris takes an optimistic view. You know, this is going to be a net win to the U.S. economy, where we're going to kind of enable us to be more competitive, enable better efficiency in the economy, where the more that I talk to folks who work in the shipping industry, they're not looking to replace the human drivers they have today. They're looking to have 
the drivers they need to grow their businesses, to power the economy, to get the goods that we all demand on a daily basis where they need to be. And so as they talk to us, it's, look, we can hire them. Can we bring the Aurora driver in to work in parallel to the human drivers we have already? I think that, yes, it's something we have to keep an eye on as a society. I think as Aurora, part of our responsibility will be to help educate and keep our policymakers and and others up to speed with what's happening. And then together, we should be figuring out how we navigate this and, and how we make sure that this huge long-term social positive thing has the minimum negative impact in the near term. To be fair, Chris isn't the one driving across the country in an 80,000-pound 18-wheeler. One of the points that you see made by some of the companies developing the technology to say, well, you can have this really cool job as a techie and as a programmer and operate remotely. That's not what you hear if you talk to any person that's behind the wheel today. They didn't get into this job because they wanted to be a computer programmer. But how do the Teamsters think about all the promised safety improvements from self-driving technology? We're not anti-technology. We support anything that's going to promote safety on the roads for our drivers, our members, for the motoring public. But any developments that are made have to be for the betterment of society as a whole. And that includes working people. And any changes that are going to be made really need the input of the people that do these jobs every day. We frankly don't believe that a lot of the companies that are developing this actually have that perspective as well. No matter what side of the debate you're on when it comes to self-driving, no one wants to be labeled as a traditionalist. It's clear progress is needed when it comes to our roads. The question is whether tech can be the solution. Even Danny Harris, the Transportation Alternatives Executive Director, isn't shutting the door on technological change. Look, because I'm a transportation advocate doesn't mean I'm a Luddite. It doesn't mean that I don't believe in innovation or in new approaches or technologies. I simply believe that the fundamental starting point for all of these technologies and policies is broken. We need to start by building and prioritizing for people. A company like Google says you start with the user and then you build everything else around it. Any company, any city that is saying, well, we have to solve for you know, building a bigger garage for an assault tank that someone is now driving around to get to the grocery store. Or we need to build our bridges larger for, you know, these bigger vehicles that are now moving people around. When our cities and our companies start to reorient around the needs of actual users, people, residents, human beings, human life, not inanimate objects, say, well, what are their needs and how do they need to move around and how can we do so in an affordable way? equitable way, a dignified way, a sustainable way, then that creates a much more interesting starting point. Peter Norton from UVA agrees. Like Kara Dennis, he says the conversation can't start and end in Silicon Valley. The roads, after all, are a public good. Absolutely, yes, consumers should have more of a choice. In fact, I would put it just a little differently. I would say citizens need more of a choice in what sort of mobility future we have. With a different set of priorities, the U.S. could look a lot more like the Netherlands. There are certainly things we could be doing that would make far better use of money like that. Most of them are actually relatively inexpensive. For example, walking and cycling and transit are all relatively inexpensive. I I realize that transit is in total expensive, but on a per-passenger basis, it's a lot less expensive than accommodating 
every person in their own car. And technology really is an advantage here when we look at it this way. By that, I mean electric bicycles have become practical and they make cycling accessible to a far greater range of people. And it's really high technology that made that possible in the form of batteries that have enough energy density to make that work. And so technology is not bad, it's very useful, but we have to figure out the best applications for it. But for now, at least, automakers and their billions of dollars seem to be winning the day. Government might push a different agenda if citizens had a bigger say. If you wanted to provide people with passenger mobility in an American city 100 or 120 years ago, you went to a public body, you went to a public service commission, and the public service commission would say, okay, we'll give you a license to serve the public, but in return, you must agree to serve unprofitable routes as well as the profitable routes. You must agree to have a fare that limits you to a reasonable rate on return in return for having a monopoly on the service in this sector of the city. In other words, it was a public policy decision. And as a public policy decision, the ultimate authorities were the public. For now, though, the government has stayed in its lane when it comes to autonomous cars. Some point soon, they'll have no choice but to cut in. Regulation is coming. Next time on The Readback. Thanks for listening to The Readback. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also email us at thereadbackatbarons.com. Thanks to Danny Harris, Peter Norton, Kara Dennis, and Chris Hermson. For more coverage on self-driving, you can check out barons.com. I'm Alex Ewell. The Readback is produced by Katie Ferguson. Melissa Haggerty is our executive producer. Additional thanks to Meta Lutzhoft and Jackson Cantrell. Next week on the show, consumers, automakers, and tech companies seem to be in favor of self-driving regulation. What's taking so long? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a more recent example, which is the backup camera in your car. Right, right. Um, Unfortunately, that took 10 years. We'll be back next week.